And welcome on in, everybody, to another edition of the Check Your Brain podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts or Spotify, if, if Spotify wants to cooperate with me today. I'm also on Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer and locals at checkyourbrain.locals.com. You can check out all these podcasts, upwards of about 20 to 25 podcasts per month at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer or checkyourbrain.locals.com. My name is Tony Mazer, the host of this podcast, and I'm pleased to be joined by somebody who is a I, I've admired because uh, I follow him on social media. I've heard him on other podcasts. And as somebody who is a is a millennial and I've talked about my generation on this podcast, I've talked about it for the last 15 plus years of me working in media. I'm being very disappointed in my generation and wondering what it's going to take to kind of I don't want to say red pill, but wake up a lot of people. And every time I thought about my generation, I, I was also thinking about the next generation, which is Generation Z, Gen Z or Zoomers. And every so often you go on TikTok and you see a lot of the insanity that goes on nowadays and a lot of what's being promoted. But every so often there's a glimpse of some kind of uh, like a breath of fresh air that you get. And this gentleman who's joining me on the podcast, my guest today, which is Ezra Wyrick, and he's somebody that I like. If it were up to me, if we could change the laws, I would love to have him be the future president of the United States very soon. It may be as early as 2024, but he cannot because he's 18 years old. But he's off to a very good start. And he's my guest today on the podcast. Ezra, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> and thank you for the kind words. Absolutely. And so uh, you're the director, LYC, Mises Magazine. Talk First, let's get the plugs out of the way. Like, uh, what do you do? Where can we find you? And then as they start to hear the podcast, they're like, oh, I definitely want to follow him on social media. I want to follow him, his sub stack and everything. Uh, I'm the director of communications for the Liberty Youth Coalition, which is an up and coming organization. Um, basically what we are, is a youth organization that's dedicated to spreading the message of liberty by educating people and, mo and mobilizing young people uh, to defend our founding principles. Uh, what I do there as director of communications is I'm in charge of the messaging of the organization. When an event happens or when something is in the news, I have to decide how that is going to be messaged and I have to coordinate with my team to make sure that we get the messaging right, to make sure that all the content that we put out is um, meets a, a certain standard of of excellence and you know is fit for for publication out there on the world wide web and and particularly on social media um i i guess i would just say that lyc is most definitely a, a no compromise organization we are 100 committed to liberty both individual liberty and economic liberty and uh we're, we're not big on we're not big on compromise uh, we, we see in other organizations uh, in, in the liberty sphere, we see some compromise happens. We see that uh, there's an incrementalist approach, which is good, by the way. I'm, I am a fan of incrementalism. I'm not a fan of compromise. So I believe that an organization that's committed to liberty, that's truly committed to liberty, should be a no compromise organization. And that is why I work for the Liberty Youth Coalition, because we are one. And you said, you know, get the plugs out of the way. Something people usually do at the end of the show, but we'll go ahead and do it at the beginning. Oh yeah, um, I, I like to do both. I like to give it a sandwich if people yeah, are like, yeah, okay, it, this is what you got. Right. And if you if you like what you hear and then you hear it at the end, you're like, okay, I didn't have to wait because I'm like, what is his name, Ezra? How do you sp pronounce and spell the last name? Exactly. Like, we just get it right exactly. out of the way first. Yeah, absolutely. Most definitely. 
Um, it's the Liberty Youth Coalition, LYC for short. Uh, you can find us on social media. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter at Liberty Youth Coalition. You can find us on Facebook. I, we have a Facebook page, Liberty Youth Coalition. Uh, we are about to be active on Sovereign Liberty Youth Coalition. Um, we we have we have a website. The thing about it is we are we are going through a revamp. Our website is going through a revamp, uh, which we hope to have complete very very quickly. Our old website is going through a renewal, and we're building a new website based off the renewals of our old website. For right now, as of right now, uh, that website is Liberty Lyceum or Liberty Lyceum, uh, LibertyLyceum.com. Uh, the thing about it is the the website is going through a revamp like i said okay so it will eventually end up being another another link there will be another link to it um but as of right now it's l-i-b-e-r-t-y-l-y-c-e-u-m.com and i found you on i talked to you on social media ezra for the number four liberty on twitter and you're a great follow uh promoting the works of Mises and, and great libertarian philosophy. And you talk about liberty and youth. And one thing I think a lot of us have been concerned about in the liberty sphere is, do the youth want liberty? And that's one thing that I've noticed in the last couple of years during the COVID years. And you have talked about it on other podcasts, you've talked about it on social media, about being somebody who's seen firsthand about what's happened, the, the direct impact of what happened with COVID, which was the biggest attack on our liberty and freedom in my lifetime, your lifetime, and I think everybody listening's lifetime, even more than the Patriot Act, 9-11, everything like that, was we locked down businesses, we uh, told you can't go to work, you're not essential, um, that the only way you can leave your house, because uh, you, you can't get food, you can't go to a concert, you can't go to a ball game. The only way you can leave your house is if you protest for Black Lives Matter or trans lives or whatever the case was, because racism was, was what they say, it was a, a worse disease than COVID was and everything. It's just like what we saw the last couple of years. Now, I was at the time of the lockdowns, I was 32. I'm 35 right now. However, you were 15 when this started. So you're talking about your best years. What When I think of my high school years and everybody else listening, their high school years of homecoming dances, football games, everything, that all of that got wiped away. These are huge impressionable years and, and memories that uh, that generations, they think about, oh, I remember when I was a sophomore, we went to the football game, then we went to the drive-in afterward. You weren't able to have that. Now you're homeschooled. So that's a little different story, which we'll get into, but they took that away from you. So I guess my long, long-winded question is, do, getting back to it, do the, does your generation, does Zoomers by and large, do they want this liberty or did it seem like they were fine with being locked down and being compliant? It varies. Um, naturally, with younger generations, there's this um, there's this natural reaction toward or this natural gravitation towards rebellion, which we've seen in every young generation. So, yes, to a certain extent. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of it's kind of odd. It's, it's a weird situation because the Zoomer generation, Gen Z, the members of Gen Z that you see on the political right tend to be pretty radical and pretty radical right, quote unquote, new right. Um, so they tend to be, I don't know, populist, nationalist types on the right or libertarians sometimes. 
Um, but they tend to be populist, nationalist on the right and extremely far left or extremely, uh, extremely on the status left whenever you go to the other end of the spectrum. I, I think there is an unfortunate gravitation towards statism in the Zoomer generation and, and also with millennials. Um, but the younger generations, I think there's an unfortunate gravitation towards statism that we haven't seen in, in previous generations. And I think it, it just speaks to how far, uh, basically how far the Overton window has shifted in the wrong direction. Because mm -hmm. young people used to be rebellious, right? I mean, young people used to be, you know, um, out talk, talking about the man and, and rage against the machine and talking about young people, not in your generation, but in the generation before you, young people were pretty rebellious against authority. Nowadays, we see we see this compliance streak. Instead of a rebellion streak, we see a compliance streak. And during COVID, we saw young people, you know, put on their masks, follow their mandates, you know, be good little citizens uh, and just basically comply with whatever the government told them. And more than I think more than any other encroachment on our liberty in the last 20 years, except maybe the Patriot Act, um, I think COVID was probably the biggest and probably the most extensive because that, 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 that's what I'll get back to you here in a second, because that's what bothered me was uh, I'm what they call an older millennial. So I was born in 88. Mm -hmm. And yes. I remember at one time where you were told don't do something and you did it because you were told not to do something. Mm -hmm. That's what it was, that rebellious streak of I'm not allowed to like if if, if um, at the end of my street growing up, there was always there was a, train tracks and sometimes there'd be slower moving trains. And every so often I'd be like, wouldn't it be kind of fun if I just like jumped on the train, just like rode it for like half a mile down the road. And then if I said something like, don't do that, that's very dangerous. My rebellious streak would be like, well, that means I have to. I mean, of course, they're telling me not to. I should do it. Or <laughs> you can't say this in class. You can't do this. But it just it really this compliance of the last couple of years by uh, it, it, it's cross generations. But it was so sad to see a, a teenager and see them just going, I guess I got to wear my mask today. Hey, and, and, and lecturing other people to wear their masks. You're like, what happened? What happened to being the rebellious teenager? Now you're just you're compliant with what your governor or your health director says. That's not that's not raging against. That's not punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it is not. Um, now, I, I, I think I would I would make a clarification that people should be free to do whatever they want to in, in the instance of public health, and especially whenever there's a health emergency like COVID, whenever there's a pandemic, you should obviously, I mean, you should take precautions, but you shouldn't be forced to take precautions. I think, I think there's a disconnect here in that a lot of people talk about the precautions themselves and not being forced to take the precautions. My problem is not necessarily with, with people wearing a mask or with people taking certain precautions. My problem is the force and coercion that goes into making people make this, a decision that they might not otherwise make or they might make on their own. Government feels the need to push the issue and feels the need to coerce people to do something. That is where I draw the line. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was amazing to see the, the uh, feeling of people just willingly give up their liberties without doing any research. And they were told not to do, don't do your own research, listen to the experts. Instead of going, wait a second, I'm starting to see patterns here. I'm starting to see that this is, there's disproportionalities, there's uh, health risks and health outcomes. And uh, what are we going to do? Like, what's the cause and effect? What's a control study? And instead we're just, nope, nope. Dr. Fauci told me this, and this is what I have to do. And 
I can understand if you're a baby boomer, you're up there in age, you're a little bit more of a higher risk group when it came to that. So you're like, okay, maybe they're, it's probably not the best idea to visit my 85-year-old grandmother and start coughing. But to have younger people who are missing sports, missing out on great opportunities, and just have wasted three years of a lot of this. And it was really sad. But what did bring me a little bit of hope was that there are Zoomers, the Gen Z, like yourself, that are saying, wait a second here, I was raised with a very solid foundation. And that's where I want to get to with you is you were homeschooled, you are homeschooled, and you have been raised from whether it's Ron Paul or uh, the Liberty Movement. This is when they talk about indoctrination, they say that you know, you what you're you're complaining about indoctrination in schools, but you're indoctrinating at home. Yeah, no, you should be indoctrinated at home. You shouldn't have a drag queen or you shouldn't have a, a, a status teacher indoctrinate you. It should be coming from your parents that this is where the foundation, whether it's faith or family, it should be coming from home. And that's where you were brought on the right track at a very early age. So talk about your path to liberty and your path through homeschool. Yeah, I, I think I think you mentioned an interesting point there whenever you talked about indoctrination. I, I think that the fact of the matter is that everyone is indoctrinated in some way. I mean, from an early age, everyone is indoctrinated in some way. There are different forms of indoctrination. Um, if you are eight years old and you are in the kitchen and the stove is on and your mother says, don't touch that stove because you'll burn yourself. She is indoctrinating you to not do something. So everyone is indoctrinated. The issue here that we have today is there is a special kind of indoctrination where they try to teach people what to think. They don't teach you how to think. And I know this is a point that has been hammered to death, but they don't teach you how to think. They teach you what to think. I had the unique ability through my homeschool experience to be taught how to think and to make my own decisions on what to think. And I think that's something that to a great extent we've lost sight of. We've lost sight of letting, giving children saying, hey, let's lay out the information before these children. Let's lay out the information before these teenagers. Let's make them make their own choices and make their own decisions about how they want to form their worldview. Let's not form their worldview for them. And because I was homeschooled and because I was not subject to that, I think I credit that for my intellectual development, and I credit that for being where I am today, because I think without it, I would probably just be another pro-government, pro-this, pro-that type of uh, uh, automaton. I would just be running around like, uh, you know, the state is good, uh, follow everything the government tells you to do, authority is good. I would just not be what I am right now if I hadn't had that unique experience. And I think too many times what children and what teenagers, particularly adolescents, because let's be honest, in high school, um, in middle school and in high school, that's when the indoctrination really ramps up because these children are coming to age and they're no longer being considered kids. They're starting to be considered adolescents or young adults. So then it's really time to ratchet up the indoctrination. So I guess that my point would be the point I'm trying to make is that I don't believe I would be where I am today. I don't believe I would have formed my worldview that I have today. I don't believe that I would have developed intellectually to the point that I have if I had been subject to the public school experience. When I was growing up, I remember I had a friend who lived across the street who was Jehovah's Witness and he was homeschooled. 
And now that I look back, I don't remember if I had any other friends that were homeschooled. And there was always this stigma that you would hear from other kids. Like, hey, he's homeschooled. Mm -hmm. It's probably a little weird. He probably has some kind of autism or, well, they didn't say that at the time, but it was like, he might have some kind of learning disability. He He's um, in, in, insulated. He's whatever. He doesn't know how to talk to kids. And in re reality, he was a normal kid. He just wasn't subject to government schools. And as time has gone on, the subject of whether it's anything from school choice to charter schools, parochial schools, all the way to homeschools has become way more mainstream than it was when I was growing up 25, 30 years ago. And what we saw in the, I would say one of the big turning points when it comes to parents is what happened in Loudoun County in 2021 mm -hmm. was you had, whether it was the, the, the rapes that were going on by that that gentleman who identified as a woman in the women's bathroom, but also when Terry McAuliffe, who was running for governor again in Virginia, was a Democrat. And if you know where Virginia is, it's an entirely red state, except for a couple of blue areas that turned the election. And those areas went red because of what Terry McAuliffe said that has become a very mainstream viewpoint by the teachers union, Randy Weingarten and others that say that, no, we own your kids. We, the government, Mm -hmm. You're just the birthing person. You are the birthing canal and you're the landlord for the kids. But in reality, we're the ones who have ownership of your kids. And parents, even Democratic parents are like, uh-uh, no, you don't. You don't know what to say when it comes to my kids' education. Now we're seeing this with uh, Florida just this week has uh, gone with school choice and Arizona and a lot of other states are starting to mm -hmm. pick this up. But homeschooling, that we saw during COVID was uh, started becoming mainstream because you saw a lot of parents going like, wait, what are you learning? I'm pulling you out of school. I, I, you're not learning anything. You're just sitting there watching and the teachers either in, in again, indoctrination, but the negative version, or they're just not learning anything. I would rather you learn on this pace. So I, as somebody who is homeschooled, you've seen this kind of from afar and you got to be kind of, like very grateful, I guess, for your parents deciding at such an early age to say, uh -uh, I'm not sending my kids to the, my kid Absolutely. to this school. It's amazing. Absolutely. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I am very grateful for that decision. And uh, I, I think, I think you made an interesting point there whenever you said there's a stigma uh, surrounding homeschooling and there is a stigma surrounding homeschooling. There is this idea that, you know, homeschool students, students that are homeschooled, children that are homeschooled, adolescents that are homeschooled, that they're, they're different. And in some cases that may be true, but I think I, I think I approach it this way. We look at society today and we look at culture today and we look at cultural degradation and societal degradation today. Do we really want our children to match up to that? Do we really want our children to fit in with this kind of a culture or do we want to raise dissidents? That's the question that parents need to be asking themselves. And I believe that parents should raise dissidents. I believe that they should tell their children and teach their children to question things, not just question things, question everything. Don't blindly follow anything. Don't have blind faith in any ideology. Question everything. Leave yourself open for intellectual growth. Don't just follow some path. Leave yourself open to intellectual growth and question everything. And let me just say another point that you made about school choice, um, about education freedom. Let me just say that educational freedom, choice and freedom in education is the civil rights issue of the 21st century. 
And I don't believe that this explosion in school choice and this explosion in freedom and education would have been possible without the COVID pandemic. Because what the COVID pandemic did was it shut down physical schooling and everything went online, everything went virtual, like what we're doing right now, Zoom meetings. The thing with that is what was previously behind closed doors was now in the bedrooms and, and now in the kitchens of, of the students in these schools. And the parents were actually able to look in and be like, wait, what are you learning? I'm sorry, what? Yeah, what long gone are the days of reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That, if you think your children are learning reading, writing, and arithmetic in school, I don't know what to tell you. Because, yeah, that's, that's part of it. That's a very incremental part of it. But there is so much more added on to curriculums in today's time. And ever, ever since the Department of Education has existed, ever since Jimmy Carter created the Department of Education at the urging of the teachers unions, ever since that happened, there has been a bureaucratic hand that has been guiding education, that has been guiding curriculums in this country, and students have been suffering. It's it's uh, it really is incredible. And, you know, I'm somebody that I went to Catholic school growing up from preschool all the way through ninth grade. And eventually I left the the Catholic school into a public school and the public mm-hmm. school was it was yes, it was a public school, but it was in a nicer area. And we we were learning things that it wasn't uh, we didn't have pride flags in our classroom. We didn't have the BLM fist up there. We were just, hey, you know. A lot, and in fact, a lot of my teachers were like so close to retirement that they stopped really caring, which, you know, you get a great education when you have a teacher who is looking to get to that 35th for the retirement <laughs> and they're in year 33. Um, but what, what I found interesting about the difference between going to a private Catholic school growing up and the public school was where they talked about the differences in culture. And in the 90s, I, you know, I guess maybe I was kind of isolated away from a lot of stuff, but I didn't know a lot of Tupac and Notorious B.I.G. and other uh, things that were really big in the culture. It's kind of kept away a little bit. And then eventually I learned it over time as I got older and my parents mm-hmm. were like, all right, we don't have to we don't have to <clears throat> ban him. He can't he can watch PG movies or PG-13 by the time he gets to a certain age. So getting to when you mentioned culture. This is huge nowadays because we are in a cultural war. Everything is a cultural war. All our political battles right now are cultural wars. And you see this with that's huge on social media is, is, of course, TikTok. You know, Instagram, Snapchat, they're all around. But TikTok is a huge driver when it comes to culture. And TikTok is really big with your generation in Gen Z. Mm-hmm. How do like what do we do right now? I mean, this is absolutely what we've seen from TikTok and things that are being promoted uh, I know you know the Andrew Breitbart quote, the politics is downstream from culture, but I think that can be amended since he's been gone now 11 years, is that I think big tech, I think what's floated out there in the culture, uh, it, it co- comes from big tech. I think technology is upstream from the culture, which is upstream from politics. And I I I think it's it's very dangerous right now. And I know there's a lot of talk about banning TikTok, but what do you perceive that's happening in the culture? How can we fix this? How can we get to a point where uh, we're not so f- hyper-focused on the newest dance craze, the newest uh, uh, challenge that we've got to do? I, I just saw one where people are eating cornstarch 
That's a big challenge right now is that they eat cornstarch. Like, what? What, what are at we doing here? At least they're not choking themselves out with one of the blackout challenge and killing themselves. Oh, is that is that another thing that's going on? Oh, that's a, that's another fad that's been going on. Oof. Any, um, I, I, I would I would just tell you this. <clears throat> I don't believe, and this is you might you might consider this a bad answer, but I'm going to tell you this straight up. There isn't a political solution to the cultural problems that we face today. There is no political solution, not to the culture. And whenever we start trying, whenever government starts thinking they know best and they know how to guide the culture, then we have a serious problem because government is one of the most, if not the most immoral entity on the face of the earth. So if we are looking to government to provide a moral compass for our society, we are doomed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, what I would say about TikTok in particular, because you mentioned that especially, uh, yeah, I think it's a negative force. I think it's it's bad that um, I think the 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 dopamine addiction and uh, uh, the seeking I forget I forget the word for it, but like validity, I believe it is validation uh, from other people, from from likes on social media, from follows on social media. I think it's a negative part of our society, um, but I don't believe government is the solution. And I think in particular, when we look at TikTok, when we look at the bill that's been introduced to, quote unquote, ban TikTok, uh, this is essentially a Patriot Act for the Internet. Yeah. It's government saying, OK, so you want this? All right. We're going to stuff it full of stuff that's going to make us be able to control the Internet even more than we already do. And we are going to have access to your bank accounts. We're going to have access to online banking. We're going to have access to your social media accounts. You are going to. You are going to basically, you're going, I, I think there's there's a quote out there uh, about selling the rope that hangs yourself. Well, that's what conservatives are doing whenever they're saying ban TikTok and give government control over social media platforms and break up, quote unquote, big tech. You are selling the rope with which the government will use to hang you because they will create a surveillance state and they will be happy. They will be happy. It's like with, with the recent very tragic event that happened in my own state with with the shooting the thing about it is people are now talking about red flag laws people are talking about mental illness as a condition when it comes to owning firearms as conservatives and i'm i wouldn't consider myself a conservative i would just say to conservatives don't sell the don't sell the rope to the government that they will then use to hang because whenever you start talking about you know, surveillance, whenever you start talking about banning social media platforms, whenever you start talking about instituting laws to prevent certain quote unquote groups or, or, or certain people from gaining access to firearms or gaining access to social media, what you are doing is you are giving government power that it will gladly accept. You are handing government control on a silver platter that it will be happy to use against you. Two weeks to flatten the curve. It's, it's, when you give up, when you it really is the old cliche is when you give an inch, they'll take a mile. And that's what you're going to see. So, OK, mm -hmm. you banned TikTok. Well, by the way, uh, we saw that you posted something on your Twitter account in 2010. And uh, and then, you know, you get into the topics of social credit system and everything like that. I mean, it's, it really is the mm -hmm. slippery slope. And as I always say, the slippery slope remains undefeated. Speaking of slippery slope. Uh, another thing that has popped up with Generation Z that is way different than previous generations, including mine, is the topic of trans and non-binary. Now, mm -hmm. I'm of the belief of if you're 25, if you're 50, 
you decide that, uh, you know, you're on this spectrum of, you know, I, I don't know what I am. Am I a boy? Am I a girl? Should I go through the surgery? If you want to do it, go for it. I mean, I know Michael Knowles recently said at the uh, at CPAC that he wished that transgenderism is eradicated. Now, what he said is he's not calling for the eradication of trans people. He's saying he would like the idea to be eradicated the same way you would want anorexia or bulimia uh, eradicated. But we've seen this, what's a, what's become a social contagion with this trans movement that is very, it's very big in, in Gen Z right now, where you'll see a group of girls, they're in a Girl Scout troop, and you have, let's say, eight girls, one of them comes out as nine bon binary, well, start the clock, because probably mm -hmm. by the end of the week, all those girls are going to become non-binary, and uh Going back to 2004, I just saw a recent study about this. It was around 2015 was when you started to see the change where more people were looking up transgenderism as opposed to anorexia. And I remember when I was in school, I didn't see many anorexics, but I did see bulimics and girls that would eat and then throw up after that. And you're seeing this because of their perception of beauty standards or whatever. Well, anorexia and bulimia were social contagions of their time. They're not as popular anymore, but there are also not celebrated by big tech, big government, uh, and big pharma. It, it, but that's what transgenderism that's going on right now. And I think uh, when you look at gen Generation Z, that they are an absolute target by those groups. So I guess what do you see from people that, whether in your social circles or what you see from your generation, that uh, like, where did this stem from? How is this a phase or is this something that you're concerned that this is going to have uh, long lasting effects longer than somebody who was bulimic for a couple of months and said, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. Kind of like the, the whole eat, the whole emo phase that emo, people went yep. through the or goth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Goth phase that, that some girls went through. Right. But I think I think there's an important, a very important distinction to be made here. When you use the term transgenderism. By nature of saying ism, you are referring to an ideology. You are not necessarily referring to people that suffer from gender dysphoria. The way I look at this is that gender dysphoria is a very real, very real mental condition. It is, it exists. And there are people that suffer, unfortunately, from gender dysphoria. And I believe whenever we, whenever we paint with, a, whenever some people, especially in the conservative movement, paint with a broad brush and they talk about how people with gender dysphoria but they lump everybody into one box and they try to say transgenders in general, rather than the people that are pretending to be transgender or the people that think it's a fad and think it's cool and think it's, uh, you know, something that they just want to identify as for a few years so they can get their attention and then move on. But then we have to recognize that there's a real mental condition. There is a real mental issue here. And I don't I don't like moral panic. And I, I, I think that's that's one of the that's one of the issues where I kind of depart from the conservative view because I don't like moral pants. I don't like vague. I don't like hardly explained uh, ideas. I don't like painting with a broad brush. And I guess whenever it comes to transgenderism, I would say if it's an ideology that people who aren't actually suffering from gender dysphoria, if it is people that are just trying to, you know, go along with a fad and they just think it's cool, but they're not actually serious about it. And it's not actually a mental condition that they have. I think that's bad. 
just as I think if if a bunch of teenagers wanted to go out and pretend to be pretend to have Down syndrome, that would be abhorrent. And it is abhorrent when people that don't have gender dysphoria pretend to have gender dysphoria. And I don't see I, I don't really see a deviation there. I don't see a differentiation because I think that anyone who pretends to have any mental illness is sick. And if you are not gender dysphoric, if you are just pretending to be quote unquote trans because you think it's the latest fad and because you think it's going to bring attention to you or bring you likes on social media, I think you are a sick individual. But if you actually suffer from gender dysphoria, I don't think it's right to paint with a broad brush and I don't think it's right to lump people that actually suffer from the disease in with the people that don't, in with the people that are fake. That's what I would say. And that's, but that's where that interesting distinction is with social contagion is, are you this or are you just a confused teenager? And it seems that mm-hmm. these, these areas, these people or these systems are preying upon impressionable kids. Because I, again, I remember when I, when I was in high school, I went, I graduated in 2006 and emo was going on at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't get into the emo stuff, but I did have blonde highlights in my hair. Yeah, it's embarrassing. I look at the photos and go, oh, that's silly. Why would I wear blonde highlights? That's dumb. But then I also realize it's a product of the time. There wasn't mm-hmm. real world consequences other than my photos. Exactly. Are kind of, my that, school that's, pictures are that's silly. A good, that's a good point that you're making. And, that and, and, the crazes and the fads of previous times weren't really harmful. They were just silly. Yeah. But the crazes and the fads that we have today, it seems like people are you know, going out, getting surgeries, having irreversible exactly. damage done done to their bodies. That's different from a harmless fad that you look back on pictures and you'll say, boy, I look stupid. But now, but now you have people killing themselves because mm-hmm. of the decisions that they made. You have real world consequences for this kind of fad or this kind of craze. And I, I don't think that's good. I don't think that's a positive development. If you wanted if you wanted to be emo in 2005 and you say I'm I'm emo now and you wear fishnets uh and you paint your fingernails black and you dye your hair black with like a maroon stripe and you listen to my chemical romance and you're a little bit more emotional because you're a teenager. Okay, there that's fine. And then a lot of the the vast majority of those people grew out of it. Maybe they listen to newer music or they went to college and they said, Yeah, I can't keep doing this anymore. And they moved on to other things, or maybe they were interested in girls or guys and they moved on. Uh, but when you were emo and you were also cutting yourself, that's when you have real world mm-hmm. consequences. Well, that's when I start to look at what's going on right now is there are real world consequences and it's being encouraged by the powers that be right now. I've never seen something like this where you're taking where the, the justification for what happened in Nashville that I've seen from these absolute monsters in mainstream media to say that or to to imply that it's because Tennessee banned gender affirming care. So meaning you cannot chop off the genitals or breast tissue of a healthy uh, five, five to 10 year old or to think it's inappropriate to have a three year old go to a drag queen story time and have a drag queen twerk all everywhere. That's justification for going to a Christian school and shooting it up. And I'm like, see, this is where you get to that point where you get to a tipping point where I think a lot of people start to wake up over this the same way two years ago about school choice and where it's going with with parents. And there are real world consequences right now. And uh, being a teenager, 
you know, you don't really think too much about the consequences. You think about the then and now. And mm -hmm. that's what exactly. I'm concerned about is that if you make life altering decisions, again, we always talk about it. You don't get tattoos when you're 10. You don't go to serve in war when you're 12. Not that anybody should in the first place. Uh, you can't get alcohol. You can't get tobacco products when you're 12, 14 years old. So why can you decide to consent for whether anything sexual or changing who you are? And it's it's something that I'm concerned about because it really seems that big government, big tech, big media, and big pharma are preying on the most impressionable generation right now. I think that's true. I think there is there is a certain amount of preying that is happening there. Um, and and I, I would just say fads and, and, and crazes, it's very normal for young people that don't really have a lot going on in their lives, that are just figuring things out to get involved or get sucked in by these kind of things and get sucked in by these kind of crazes. But whenever there's real world consequences, like you mentioned with emo, whenever people were cutting themselves and, you know, kind of uh, glorifying depression and glorifying being suicidal, that's whenever it became a problem. Now, I, I would expect anytime you have some kind of uh, cultural craze or fad, whatever, whatever word you want to use to describe it, I would expect teenagers to gravitate towards it. The issue that we run into is whenever there is real world consequences, whenever yeah. you could actually screw yourself up for life by participating in this fad. And then if 15 years down the road, you realize I, I wasn't really I wasn't really trans. I was just going along with some fad and that fad no longer exists. Well, guess what? You're not going to just look back at pictures and say, I look silly. You're going to you're going to look at yourself and say, I'm a mess. You're going to say, I've been deformed. I've had surgeries that have completely messed me up. I have all kinds of issues. And that's why I believe that's why you see very high rates of suicide among trans individuals. There's two angles there. There's the real people who are gender dysphoric, who commit suicide because they don't feel, they feel like something is missing in their lives because they're not what they think in their mind that they need to be. But then there's also the people that do try to satisfy their their craving to be another gender and go out and get the surgeries and go out and, and get all this stuff done to them and take hormones. And then after that, they realize that this is irreversible, that this can't be reversed, that this is not something that they needed to do. And this is something that has harmed them. So then they commit suicide because basically they've ruined their lives. And it, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing, no matter how you slice it. And I think these kind of issues whether it be whether it be transgenderism, whether it be, you know, abortion, whatever the issue may be, these kind of hot button issues that people are really sensitive about. Government really doesn't have a place in these kind of issues. These are cultural issues. Correct. These are issues that people have to solve. These are issues that cultures have to change to solve. When you have government come in and when you have government, again, try to act as a quote unquote moral compass you have serious problems and the problems that you already have are elevated to the next level. Let's uh, mention praying, P-R-E-Y. Let's talk about P-R-A-Y and the what we've seen now recently when it comes to religion. And, you know, mm -hmm. you go through the whole statistics of every generation seems to get less religious. They're not going to the church and they've replaced these these institutions with whether it's going to college and being a part of a fraternity, uh, TikTok, uh, being a part of some kind of movement or um, 
you know, it's, it, w- whatever it could be. So religion has replaced it. It's just it's gone down significantly over time. But I have read a lot of stories of where, where you mentioned about some rebellious Gen Z that would decide that, hey, wait a second here. You know, I'm told that this is normalized, this and this. And like, they kind of want more tradition. They want to go back a little bit. And I've noticed that because I'm Catholic and Mm -hmm. rediscovering the Latin mass or the traditional mass that, of course, Pope Francis wants to get banned. But that's a completely different story. I'd love to talk to Tom Woods about that. Um, But rediscovering the traditional mass for me as a Catholic has reawakened me and reawakened my personality and reawakened uh, a lot of the tenets of my faith, of of someone that was very upset with what uh, Catholicism, what a lot of these, especially suburban churches, complying with all the COVID stuff and shutting down on and having no problem with being shut down during Easter and the high holy days. Um, so I I enjoy going back there. And I've seen that there, are, uh, when I go to see a, a, to a traditional mass or a Latin mass, I see a lot of young people. A lot of young people that are going back to some kind of tradition. So it's a great thing to see. What have you seen from, again, your either your social circles or your generation? Are they getting somewhat interested in the church? Are they somewhat getting back into whether, and it, again, doesn't have to be Christianity. It could be Judaism, could be Buddhism, Islam, whatever it is. Have they decided to kind of look into why we've had these institutions for so many millennia? I think I think the answer to that question is that young people are searching for something. They are searching for answers. They don't know where to find those answers. For some people, it's the church. For some people, you know, maybe they go into um, that they go into philosophy or they go to college. They get a bunch of credentials and they start talking about complex things. Uh, people find their answers in different ways. But for some young people, yes, they are going to the church and they are looking to God to find answers. And I think that's a good thing. And that's something that we need to see more of, because the way that we can change our culture, the way that we can stop having these problems in our culture is to have a moral culture. Now, when I say that people kind of people kind of back off a little bit because they say, if you're saying a moral culture, do you mean a morality enforced by government? No. No, I don't mean a morality enforced by government. And in fact, I think the very idea of government enforcing morality as immoral of an institution as they are is outrageous. But I do believe that voluntarily people need to return to some semblance of morality and some semblance, not just of morality, but of community. Because one of the things that we've lost, and not entirely, you still see it where I'm from, East Tennessee, you still see it in other parts of the South, you still see it in the Midwest, but in the vast majority of areas and in the different regions, there's been a loss of community. And I think the reason, if we really, they say water runs down, if we look at the cause for this loss of community, I think it's a loss of religion. And I don't think, I approach this differently, I don't believe that the loss of religion is a result of the people outside the church. I believe it's a result in people in Christianity, people, people in all different religions and organized religion, especially Christians have become complacent and church has become something where the pastor gets up, speaks to the same 200 people every Sunday. There's no one new, there's no community outreach. And that's a problem. Churches need to be in communities. Churches need to be the difference. Churches need to be the difference maker. They need to be the change driver. 
And we need to get churches back involved in our community because whenever, and this is a point I make, I don't know if you will agree with it or not, but whenever there's no religion, whenever there's no, whenever there's no moral compass outside of the state, the state becomes the moral compass and the state becomes Correct. the religion. They have People to fill that, it. It's a vacuum. Yeah. It fills in a in a certain vacuum. way. And that's it's where a power vacuum. It's, it's I, I, as if. Go ahead. I was going to say, I remembered uh, that story from a few years ago, Lori Laughlin from uh, who played Aunt Becky in, in um, Full House and paying all that kind of money for her daughter to go to college. And you say, why? I mean, her daughter makes millions being an Instagram influencer. And you've made millions on TV reruns and, and Fuller House and everything. What's the point? And it's because it's a status thing. It's a status symbol to say, well, my daughter goes to Stanford. Well, my daughter mm -hmm. and my son goes to Harvard Law. And well, my son goes to Yale. And it, it, <clears throat> so instead of it being a communal feel, the communal, it becomes government properties, which are the institutions, these institutions, when there is no, like you said, and I 100% agree, when there is no religion, when there is, a, and, and again, not a, go the government will sweep in and do whatever they can can do here. Yeah. Uh it, it's a uh it's really sad and you see that in a lot of communities to the point where we don't know our neighbors. No one knows our neighbors. No one knows I mean the people in your church are just some random church people or whatever. Mm -hmm. eh, who knows where they are because there is no communal feel. It, it seems like we're such a global feel. We care so much about uh who the president is and who uh the the World Economic Forum that we don't know who our local councilmen we don't know who's on the school board. Mm -hmm. We don't know who, who all these. Uh, I've talked about the 10,000 10, Lichtensteins, that everything's got to start very local. And mm -hmm. a lot of that has to do with religion and your church and your community. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, communities are more capable of making decisions than small governing bodies. And I, th I think that gets into another point that one of the solutions or one of the ways that we can make things better is through decentralization. And someone made an interesting point whenever they said, well, you know, too much decentralization can be bad because look at how tyrannical your local HOA can be. And that's that's a decent point because at the end of the day, anytime you anytime humans are put into a position where they can rule over other humans, things are going to go bad. My issue is I would rather deal with a quote unquote tyrannical HOA that has no power to kill me and has no power to do yep. anything particularly bad to me than to deal with a federal government or to deal with a centralization of power that has the authority to kill me, to imprison me, to do all these bad things to me. You have to ask yourself a, a question. You have to ask yourself, would you rather deal with a small bureaucratic or not a small, a, a large bureaucratic entity like the government or would you rather deal with a small bureaucratic entity like an HOA? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I would much rather deal with a homeowners association than the federal government. The homeowners yep. association isn't taxing me. The homeowners association doesn't want 30% of my income. The homeowners association doesn't have the power to throw me in jail. They don't have the power to kill me. They don't have the power to send me to war against my will. The government does. So yep. decentralization is a positive force. And the way that we can see some positive change is if we sit, we need to get back to a principle that a word I love to say is nullification. It's just, very simply put, it's people just saying no. It's people just saying no. It's people saying, okay, maybe you are the entity that is supposed to have this authority to do X, but I don't recognize your authority to do X. And when that happens, when people say no to government, government can do nothing. 
because at the end of the day, government is powerless. The illusion of power is just that, an illusion. Mm -hmm. And if 300 million people stand up to a government that consists of probably less than a million people, probably less than a million people at the top, if 300 million people stand up, it's not going to go well for the smaller group. Nope. So they have to keep you, they have to keep you distracted. Number one, they don't want dissidents. So they try to label dissidents as, I don't know, conspiracy theorists, as, you know, crazies, people that are outside the mainstream, even libertarians, even, you know, anarchists, libertarians, whatever the case may be. Anyone who doesn't really follow uh, what the state or what, what the people at the top want you to follow, anyone who asks questions is a dissident and there's someone that needs to be silenced. And that's a problem. That's that's a huge problem that we face. On a similar topic, I want to ask you about volunteerism. Is you are somebody who is very, you you are a staunch proponent of it. Like what what does that mean to you? And I guess explain it to the audience in your view. Volunteerism is simply voluntary interaction. It very simply, I believe that all individual actions, actions between individuals, whether it be on the community basis, whether it be on the city basis, or just individuals in their homes. All actions should be voluntary. You should not use coercion to accomplish your goals. I, I, I believe in volunteerism. I believe in this. I believe in taking it to the max. I believe in a completely free market. I believe in the separation of state and market. I believe in laissez-faire capitalism. But, you know, capitalism is awesome. But you know what's even more awesome? Free markets. Free markets are awesome. And capitalism and free markets, are, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Like capitalism has some room for regulation. Free markets do not. And I think that in the spirit of volunteerism, when markets are completely free, I think people will do best when they're free to make their own decisions and operate in a voluntary way rather, rather than a coercive way. Well, that's uh, boy. Well, no, well, then you mentioned capitalism, and then you have corporatism, which is when mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of the which communists, is a perversion so of capitalism. Yeah, yes. with the socialists, they always say, "Well, that's capital." It's like, yes, but <laughs> it's always not that. really. Yeah, not it's really. like it, it's always such a caveat. It's always mm -hmm. it's always fun to when you, we get into these terms, we get into talking about uh, all the definitions that uh, they get mm -hmm. kind of perverted over time. But uh, it, it it's really honestly, it's very good to hear from somebody who is has their you know what together at such an early age and is able to uh I, I hopefully bring these ideas and inspire a lot of people because for a lot of us who are dissident uh, millennials or gen xers who are listening right now who just look and say gosh they're black pilled there there's no hope for the next generation mm -hmm. there is hope there there's always going to be hope there is an opportunity i mean again and whenever I whenever I think I'm going to get too black pilled, I realize where I was three years ago at this exact time. So we're recording this at the end of March in mm -hmm. 2023. Three years ago at this very time uh, was in the middle of 15 days to flatten the curve. And I'm like, there's no way. I mean, I've read up on authoritarian uh, and totalitarian dictatorships and what they're capable of doing. And this this isn't going to be done by April 1st. We're going to be stuck inside. They're going to force masks and eventually they're going to force vaccines and this and this. And you can't do this. You can't do that. And here we are three years later. 
all the mandates are essentially gone, except for unless you're uh, Djokovic trying to play tennis and come back to the United States. But the mandates are gone because a lot of people decided to get up and say no and give a middle finger to and and nullify a lot of these um, to what the powers that be and a lot of the blockades they tried to put into place. So as much as I can be upset, going all the way, you know, Michael Malice has his new book called The White Pill about the Soviet Union. Who thought in 1981 that in 10 years the Soviet Union was going to be no more? Who thought in 1986 the Soviet Union was just a couple of years away and the Berlin Wall was going to fall? So there is hope. There is an opportunity to fill in some of those gaps and to to be depressed and black pilled this whole time is just really upsetting. I guess my biggest white pill right now is uh, there's a possibility that uh, maybe you could head up the Mises Institute now that Jeff Dice is uh, leaving, uh, but um, <laughs> you know maybe eventually. Uh, but uh, uh, this has just been fantastic. This has been a great interview. Um, and uh, again, where can we find you? And I know, and I, I, I'm urging the audience right now. Keep an eye on this kid. I don't want to say kid. You're a man. You're 18 years old now. Keep an eye on him because he's going far in, in this world. So uh, let's get the plugs out once again. We do the sandwich here in the podcast. And uh, where can we find you? Where can we find you on social media? Where can we find some of your writing? And uh, I guess where can we follow you as you continue on in, in your journey into your 20s? Yeah, absolutely, man. It's, this has been great. Uh, Number one, let, just thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you can find the organization that I work for where I'm director of communications, uh, LYC at libertyleasium.com. Uh, you can find us on all the social media at the Liberty Youth Coalition. That website will be changing in the near future. We're going to have a bigger, better website because we're improving as an organization and we're getting bigger and we're getting better. Um, you can, you can find me on Twitter at Ezra for Liberty. I mean, you can find me on Facebook, although I'm not very active there at Ezra Wyrick. Uh, you can, you can find me on Substack at Ezra Wyrick. I, I think it's, uh, Ezra Wyrick.substack, something like that. Um, you can probably just type the keywords in there and you'll find it. Uh, I don't post there as much as I would like to sort of a, a blog type thing or, you know, posting different articles, but I would like to start posting more there because I need to do more writing. It's just been busy. But yeah, man, I appreciate you having me on and I appreciate you doing this. This has been a great interview. And if you liked what you heard, make sure you subscribe to uh, the podcast there, uh, wherever you're listening to this at uh, for the Check Your Brain podcast with me, Tony Mazur. Go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazur for more podcasts like this and early access to them as well. And at checkyourbrain.locals.com, which uh, is where I guess Scott Adams is putting all his Dilbert cartoons now. So uh, again, thanks everybody for listening to this podcast. And we'll talk to you next Wednesday with another free edition of the Check Your Brain podcast. Again, if you want more, go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R. Have yourselves a good one. Bye, everyone.